Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Sherry Simon of Concordia University about her book Cities in Translation, in which she charts the role of translational practice in the literary developments of four linguistically divided cities, Calcutta, Trieste, Barcelona and Montreal. In this interview we discuss the role of plurilingual cities as a site of modernist literature and consider the ways in which their spatial configurations influence the flow of new ideas and we consider the possibilities and arguable dangers of self-translation across contested language boundaries. Sherry, how did you come to write this book? Well, this book actually comes out of a previous book that I wrote on uh, on the city of Montreal. And in fact, uh, even in the introduction to this one, I make it quite clear that this is a continuation of the exploration of of, uh, of my experience of Montreal as someone who was born into this particular divided city and is still curious to understand to what extent the, uh, the situation of Montreal is really singular or not. And I'm not entirely sure that even after this long exploration of three other cities, I've come to a definitive conclusion on that. But uh, my question had to do with how language divisions in the city can be both, of course, a divisive and difficult situation, and on the other hand, an exciting and productive one. And there is something to be said for the idea of of what I call productive dissonance in the divided city. So the linguistically divided cities that I look at are not cities like Jerusalem or Beirut They're not the cities where you have intractable political conflict, because that is obviously a situation where where there is going to be little, at least in the period of of political conflict, that will be productive or Mm -hmm. they'll be they'll 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 come about afterwards. I do begin my book, Cities in Translation, with a discussion of Nicosia, which is a city that is that is living, it calls itself the last divided capital of Europe, and it is a city where conflict is uh, intensely politicized and where there is little contact and little productive uh, conflict across the city. But I take this as, let's say, an example that perhaps one day will reveal some happy a conclusion, but not not at the moment. So, okay, my my exploration begins in Montreal, which is a city which historically has been divided spatially as well as linguistically, and that was one of the questions that I wanted to look at. How does how does language map itself spatially onto the city, and how can you see the cultural history of such cities as as cities brought about through translation? So. Rather than looking at linguistically divided cities as double entities and looking at one side or the other side, my aim was to look at the passages across cities. And the passages across cities are both material, geographical, they involve voyages across the city, and they are linguistic. And that those linguistic passages take many, many different forms. The theoretical question that I wanted to look at in divided cities before I actually 
discuss the cities that I chose, is the question of recognizing the presence and the imaginative power of language in cities. And there's been a huge explosion of writing about the city since, let's say, about the 1980s. I think the city became a very, very attractive scene of exploration, in particular because it allowed an exploration of a site which was not national. It was not dealing with national issues. And I think that there was a kind of a, an exhaustion with the question of the nation at around that time. So cities came as a promising venue for exploration of questions of community, questions of citizenship, questions of belonging. And there's a terrific explosion of such writing with names like Harvey and Sasson and, and, well, the importance of the work of Walter Medjumin about the city and so many other names, Edward Soja, etc., that I could mention. But what is extraordinary uh, when you look at this library of books is the absence of attention to language. It's as if language is simply taken for granted. Even in, a, there's a lot of work on Los Angeles, which has a large Spanish-speaking population, but language is simply mentioned, but not drawn out for the ways in which one experiences one city through language. Now, this is the case for both cities like New York or Paris or Toronto cities that are, generally speaking, multilingual, yet with one dominant language. And for cities that I explore where two languages, two strong languages are in competition. All cities are multilingual. All cities are multilingual. All cities um, have, have conflicts of languages, have languages in, in competition, but some more than others. Just to cut back to the uh, physical aspect of the city, I mean, one striking um, theme of your work is the way this notion of language is unified with this very physical sense of passing through the cities with its passages and conduits. And you emphasise early on that your focus is on the way that translators influence the circulation of ideas, but in quite a physical sense, would that be fair to say? Absolutely. So that was what I wanted to show, uh, because uh, to, to draw uh, attention to the fact that um, both from the point of view of urban studies and from translation studies. So for urban studies to show that language is very much a part of the city and that language is always moving. Uh, languages are always moving. The um, linguistic consciousness of cities are always in movement, uh, whether it be for changes of population, diaspora, migration, or simply the weight of languages change as as uh, as as political and uh, ideological uh, uh, and socio-demographic features uh, change. So um, you have very often in, in the kind of city that I'm speaking about where two languages are in competition, you have two different, two different kinds of languages um, in, in, um, in competition. So you have uh, sort of more vehicular languages, which are languages that don't provoke a sense of strong attachment. And vernacular languages, which are a kind of emergent national languages. And so you have the conflict between these two kinds um, of languages. And translators um, turn out to be, you know, wonderful guides to following how languages move in the city. So I sort of devised a method that I began um, with in my, in my book on Montreal, which was to look at the translators, watch them to see where, where do they live? What are they doing? How is their 
work in translation. I'm, and here I'm talking about translators who have, a, let's say, a sense of a strong cultural project. So uh, less than uh, a translator who has just been asked to do something. I'm looking at translators who have a sense of themselves as cultural mediators and who intervene um, in the life of their city. And so in this sense, the translator is often something else as well, a writer, a journalist, someone who has, as I say, a cultural project. So look at the translators. What are they doing? Who are they? Um, how does their trajectory reveal something about how language relationships are changing in the city? And the particular kind of cultural project that's often um, the product of this, this productive dissonance that you talk about uh, is quite typically uh, a modernist strand of literature arising out of the dual city in your work. Is that a particularly uh, natural development, do you find? Well, it certainly works for the cities that I've looked at, and I'm talking about a certain kind of a time frame. I'm talking about a time frame from, let's say, about the 1880s um, until, let's say, the end of the uh, millennium. The, I looked at four cities, and two of them were cities um, whose modernity um, I was exploring was one that came about the turn of the century, and then two other cities whose modernity was more um, in the 50s and 60s. But this seems to be a pattern. It has to do with um, a kind of uh, national consciousness that emerges in the city. It has a, it has a different kind of a, a valence in the city, especially in cosmopolitan cities like Montreal or Trieste. Um, but they are, um, they are they are nationalist projects, and they react to a pre-existing, uh, more cosmopolitan um, uh, imagination uh, which the city had. So this kind of a modernity, yes, it seems to uh, I. I I'm sure there are other uh, plenty of other examples we could look at, and there would be different time frames. But modernity, um, in in the way I use it, it, sort of stands in for this kind of productive energy, a certain kind of uh, energy of renewal, uh, which I can re relate to uh, the kind of cultural renaissances that took place uh, in the late 19th century, and a similar kind of renaissance that seems to take place in cities like. Uh, Montreal and uh, Barcelona in the 1960s. On that point, you make the distinction in your introduction between furthering and distancing as two of the possible kinds of consequence of the linguistically conflicted city. Uh, would it be fair to say that these uh, developments are mostly arising out of furthering, which is perhaps not maybe not the typical case, or maybe it only arises in certain more cosmopolitan environments? Yes. Um, yes. This is a distinction that I uh, that I um, introduce and uh, make it quite clear from the beginning that I'm more interested in furthering than I am in distancing. So there's a great deal of translation that has as its social force. I'm talking about the social force of translations, less they're in, in some sense their aesthetic um, workings out, but the social force of translation in many many cases is what I call distancing. And I've recently become uh, found another word for it or found another analogy for it, which is tolerance. Kind of you, you translate so that uh, you, um, one becomes familiar with another culture, but uh, nothing changes in the relationships between the two cultures. So 
one takes cognizance of another culture, one learns that it exists, but in some senses, that only augments the rift between them, and you realize how distant you are uh, from that culture. That's something, it's, it's a little bit like tolerance. I recognize that you're different, I will tolerate your difference, but tolerance is really, <laughs> you know, the lowest common denominator there is. We want something more than tolerance. We want real engagement with difference. We want something to happen in the relation with another uh, culture. So that's where furthering becomes more like uh, finding new ways of understanding difference uh, and where the terms of engagement are actually altered by uh, the encounter with the other. So in the kinds of translation that I refer to, which is which is furthering, um, there is a an, something is unbalanced, something there's a disequilibrium introduced, um, which changes the relationship between the cultures in question and involves a movement towards. In the case of, uh, of the both Barcelona and Montreal, it's a movement towards the vernacular, uh, the national vernacular, the uh, Catalan um, in, uh, in Barcelona or French in Montreal. You make that distinction between um, tolerance and something more, more productive. It reminds me rather of the debates about multiculturalism and whether uh, whether that is what we wish to aspire to or whether we want something more than that. Does it does it tie up with that? Absolutely. Um, in fact, my my uh, my initial interest in Montreal came from uh, the kinds of um, disturbances that were um, the discourses around multiculturalism and belonging in uh, in Quebec um, and in particularly Montreal in the 1980s. And uh, multiculturalism has revealed itself to be um, a um, a very limited way of thinking about uh, about belonging in our cities, um, multiculturalism being very close to uh, yes, what you would call tolerance or or my idea of translation as distancing, and um, what uh, what I'm trying to get at are the kinds of changes that I've actually observed and that I observe in all the cities that I've studied. Um, which um, involve different ways of relating to language, different ways of, of, of um, uh, a more generalized uh, belonging um, that come, through, come about through translation. So come about through what I call these warmer or more intense forms of translation, which are a condition of citizenship for today's cities, uh, because there must be a common language, but the common language can't be forced or imposed there has to be kinds of there have to be kinds of translation um, which come about through the processes of a common citizenship. So turning to the four cities that you discuss in detail in your book, 19th century Calcutta, Habsburg, Trieste, post-Franco Barcelona, and late, late 20th century Montreal, uh, they're spread across space and time. Do you see strong commonalities stretching across that space and time? I at first was looking for cities um, like Montreal, which are marked by spatial divisions. So I realized that um, I was talking about, or I was looking at the spatial divisions of colonialism. Um, if you look at the history of colonial cities, uh, British and French colonial cities, especially of the 19th uh, century, you see a common spatial uh, configuration. And that is that there's an indigenous 
city in some senses that's pre-existing, not exactly this, the, the case for Calcutta, but uh, pre-existing indigenous city, and then a, uh, a European enclave, which is super superimposed upon the uh, indigenous city, which results in a kind of black town, white town configuration, which was most specifically seen in Calcutta, but in uh, in, in, in French Morocco, et cetera, et cetera. So um, what happens when you see this spatial division? Of course, it, it calls for translation because these spatial divisions are also linguistic divisions. Who crosses those lines? How do they cross lines? How do cultures and languages cross those lines? Uh, this was my um, sort of beginning uh, question. But then I looked at um, uh, others, uh, other cities came to appear uh, just as important. Uh, Trieste has some similarities with the colonial uh, configuration, but not the spatial one. So Trieste is a Habsburg city, uh, has much in common, even though it's an atypical, very atypical Habsburg city. It had some uh, very important aspects of the Habsburg city, which is that German is a colonial and proto-colonial, it's an imperial the situation technically, but a proto-colonial uh, administrative overlay of German over what is the uh, indigenous language, if you like, which is <laughs> Italian in the case uh, of Trieste. But you can look at Prague or Budapest or many, many other uh, cities and see um, a similar configuration. So. Uh, what was common to the cities was was this duality, was the fact that you had two strong languages um, fighting it out um, over the in the scene of the city, but the spatial configurations are different. Barcelona finally is different as well. It's not a colonial configuration where you have Catalan lined up on one side and Castilian on the other, but you rather you have sort of pockets. So what I used in the terms uh, in terms of um, uh, speaking about uh, Barcelona was the idea of passages that go through the city, kind of secret passageways, um, which do actually exist in the city, uh, but that you, which you can sort of understand imaginatively as the passages of secret languages uh, through the city, because uh, Barcelona was a city where um, Catalan was, for the long period of Franco's dictatorship, uh, prohibited. Uh, from the city and has only recently reemerged. So your question was, what's common to these cities? Uh, very briefly, just recap. Uh, so they have two strong languages fighting it out on the terrain of the city, uh, but the spatial configurations are different. So turning first to Calcutta, uh, you discussed the Bengali Renaissance in the context of various preceding failed attempts to bridge across that language divide, or maybe not failed is too strong, but uh, maybe not fully realized attempts. The first of which uh, circles around this rather picturesque figure of Harasim Lebedev. Yes, he, he's, he's a fantastic character, and um, I wish I knew more about him as well. In fact, lots of people do, uh, because he was a very uh, colorful guy, and uh, he was actually expelled from Calcutta as a result of uh, some of his um, entrepreneurial ideas, and it's not sure if he was a, a spy or if uh, people were simply jealous of him. But he had very, very early, uh, when he arrived in, uh, in Calcutta, and we're talking about the end of the 18th century, 
he had the idea of translating theater from English into Bengali, something that was kind of totally unheard of. Um, and I like exploring these ideas of what's unheard of or what's unthinkable or unthought of at a certain time. You know, tr you know what is translated, Bill, at uh, in certain uh, situations, and what is not translatable. So the idea of translating theater from English into Bengali at that time was literally um, unthinkable. He was the first one to suggest it. Um, he was also wonderfully inventive in terms of his musical, um, inventing uh, hybrid forms of musical composition, hybrid forms of um, uh, decor uh, using um, um, traditional Bengali designs as well as European ones and using the proscenium stage. So um, it would have been so wonderful to have an actual recording <laughs> of what his translation uh, and this performance might have looked like. Um, in the end, uh, he was able to only put on a certain number of performances and, uh, and then he was run out of town. Um, so his, his idea of translating from English to Bengali at this very early stage stands as a kind of a, a road not taken. It would take, um, um, you know, many decades until something like that could be uh, successfully enacted. Um, he was also Russian, um, and that might have something to do with the fact that he had an idea which might not have occurred since the uh, cultural rift between Bengali and and, and the British, who were becoming uh, more and more of a strong administrative presence in the city um, at that time, maybe because he was Russian, he could do something. Uh, but he he stands as a as a as a wonderful example of what is unthinkable, what can be done despite unthinkable, and uh, stand as a kind of model which um, which would later be taken up. But the other thing about Lebedev that was so interesting is that he was actually a linguist and um, used um, the Bengali that he translated into uh, was a particular hybrid form as well. Uh, he wrote a book and he, um, um, he became one of the first to become interested in hybrid forms of contact language um, in India. Uh, so as a linguist, um, he was also uh, important. A second intermediate figure uh, you discuss whose um, legacy is rather more contested perhaps is that of James Long. Uh, I wonder how, you, how do you see his uh, contribution in the benefit of hindsight? I, I was for a long time very puzzled about James Long. Um, he was Irish, born Irish um, and uh, spent most of his life in Calcutta and what um, uh, inspired me most about James Long is that he he was truly a, a citizen of Calcutta. He he loved the city. He explored it and uh, um, and studied it in ways that no one had done before him. He was actually an inventor um, of the social sciences um, in in Calcutta. He founded a number of important uh, associations which dealt with the social sciences. He was profoundly sympathetic uh, to Bengali culture, and yet um, he was a missionary. So hard to figure out exactly how to situate such um, an individual. Uh, he comes to our attention first because he's actually jailed uh, by the British authorities, um, ostensibly for having translated 
a, a subversive text about the indigo planters. This was a big controversy in, uh, in India, especially in Calcutta in around 1861. And this followed the Sepoy Rebellion, or what's known as the first uh, Indian Rebellion uh, in the late 50s. And so the British were uh, worried about any kind of possible uh, subversive act. So um, in fact, James Long did not translate um, the work that he was supposed to have, but he was associated with it. And the British uh, understood that, and they actually put him in jail. He, a British citizen, was jailed by, uh, by the British authorities, which made him an instant and long enduring uh, hero of Bengali culture. So he really uh, occupied this marvelous space between, uh, between uh, the his his identity as 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 a European and a, and a British person, and his great sympathy um, for Bengali culture. So, what does that mean in terms of translation? He was a great great believer in translation into Bengali. Uh, he promoted translation, and he promoted certain kinds of translation. So he promoted translation of the Bible. Uh, into Bengali, but also he wanted novels and all kinds of other works translated into Bengali. The question ultimately becomes, what is the real benefit of these translations? They were done under the aegis of the religious authorities. They were chosen as appropriate for Bengalis. And yet they were translated into Bengali. They promoted the Bengali language and therefore um, gave the language the, uh, the capacity, the genetic capacity to reproduce itself, or I mean, they aided it, it would have got there anyway, but uh, they aided uh, the Bengali language in, 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 in being uh, sort of uh, set up uh, as a language, having adequate resources to express uh, many kinds of reality. So um, James Long, and, and just one more uh, thing about James Long, which is sort of just perfect for my particular purposes. Um, at one point, he actually set up house um, in the intermediary zone between the British and the um, Bengali parts of, of the city. He actually lived in the central part um, with, uh, with, with, with a Bengali uh, priest. So um, he really did sort of set himself up as an intermediary uh, between the two cultures and was extremely effective. But um, as I say, what are the effects finally of the kinds of translation he did, of the control that he exercised over translation? He believed that translation was a kind of, uh, should be adapted always um, towards uh, Bengali values and so that they would be um, immediately assimilatable. Um, and yet there was a, um, as kind of a civilizing pedagogical aim behind his his work. So I think there's something very instructive about the um, the ambiguities of James Long, uh, the fact that he worked for the British, that he did this amazing um, uh, work of uh, studying the um, print culture of Bengalis present. Per, he prepared a report which even today uh, stands as an important report on Bengali publishing. He was the only one who really could do this, who really understood exactly what was happening on the ground. But in the end, this report also had um, kind of very important surveillance functions. 
So what to say about this kind of a project of translation? And I think this is an interesting, um, uh, there's an interesting analogy, if I can just skip forward uh, to my work um, on Montreal. Mm -hmm. Again, it would be, take me a moment to set it up, but uh, there's a francophone who translates from Yiddish into French, uh, which had never been done before. And he does this um, with extremely uh, laudatory uh, aims and with very important uh, political results. Yet, this enterprise of translation at the same time uh, ends up serving the, uh, the, the, the power situation of, uh, of, of French nationalism uh, in, in Quebec. I, I can explain that in a moment. But central to both enterprises of translation is that they're immensely important. Uh, they're undertaken with the best of, um, uh, the best of intentions. But in the end, they have um, ambiguous results. That is to say uh, that they could serve interests which are in some ways contrary to the intentions that they represent. It's then in many ways a less controversial figure who dominates the latter part of your chapter on Calcutta and the Bengali Renaissance, that of Bankim Chandra Chatterjee, who you credit with, in effect, translating the concept of the novel into Bengali and thus into other Indian languages. Yes, he, he, he's, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, he's, he's very much a giant and he's someone who has become consecrated as the great uh, figure of Bengali nationalism. The, 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 the consecration um, of Bengali nationalism in the form of um, the novel written in Bengali uh, ben Kim is um, a very interesting figure. Again, you know, follow the translator, see what the translator can show you um, about what's happening in the culture. He was, as they say, a textbook embodiment of the ambivalence of, uh, of, of the individual and the culture at the time. He was someone who, he was the, one of the first Bengalis to, uh, to get a BA. Uh, he became an important uh, administrator in the British um, in the British administration. Um, at the same time, he was a great reader of Sanskrit, a great believer in, in, uh, in Hindu nationalism. And what he managed to do um, was to translate the form of the novel. So this um, Calcutta in the late 19, in the 1860s is an intense uh, contact zone. Uh, even if the two areas of the city are, are separate, even if there's not maybe a lot of, uh, of traveling between, uh, uh, material traveling between the two. There's a tremendous amount of cultural traveling. The book is absolutely uh, essential. There's a great book culture um, in, in Bengal, and you have a lot of the, uh, or at, at least a significant part of the Bengali population reading in English. So um, Ban Kim is reading in English, um, and thinking about what he's going to write. And his first novel called Raj Mohan's Wife, he actually writes in English, um, but um, it's a flop. It doesn't work. And uh, critics are uh, pretty clear on the fact that it doesn't work because he doesn't really know who he's writing for. And um, then Ben Keem understands that it's not only 
the language that he must deal with, but he must in some way displace himself and displace um, the form that he's working with. And he decides to start writing novels in Bengali. There had never been such thing as the form of the novel in Bengali. Um, he writes works that are significantly different from what the novel is in, um, in English, and he transforms it at the same time. But he does found something which is called uh, the novel in Bengali and which becomes hugely successful immediately and hugely translatable. The, his works were translated, but also the novel form after he had sort of initiated it became translated into all the other languages in, um, in, in India, the major languages adopted the novel form in a kind of magical and simultaneous moment of, of reproduction. So uh, Ban Kim's hesitations, his own personal ambivalence, um, his own ambivalence with regard to values as well. His, um, he's both someone who would be very sort of uh, traditional in his um, personal ways, um, the food he ate, the places he, he, the places he lived in, um, he would change. Uh, at some times he would be religious, other times he wouldn't care. Uh, he, he's, he's just um, a fascinating uh, example of this kind of ambivalence and the, the, his ability uh, to translate himself kind of back and forth. Because um, I shouldn't make it sound like he only does one thing. He continues to write letters in English, uh, but he writes the novel in Bengali. His, his personal um, sort of embodiment of the, the border, if you like, um, has spectacular uh, consequences. And then, um, you know, his, th that story becomes the, the, the story that is told and becomes kind of the, the centerpiece of Bengali literary nationalism. Now, this whole movement, this whole story that I've just told will be, will be, will be central to the way Bengali culture thinks about itself, both adopting this idea and criticizing it. So a lot of the post-colonial critique, which, fought, which we've seen in the 1960s, 1980s, um, critiques uh, Ban Kim and this sort of miraculous switch from one to the other, um, seeing it sometimes as too exclusively Hindu, um, it, uh, excluding Muslim realities, excluding women. Uh, so it's not, it, it's, it's a narrative which is both central and also critique. But translation and self-translation um, are central to this uh, question of who is Bengali, who becomes Bengali, how does the Bengali language um, evolve um, in, in very different ways, of course, from uh, the stories that, the other stories that we've just talked about, James Long and, uh, and Lebedev. The theme of uh, self-translation is one that resurfaces periodically in a work and is one I'd like to come back to. But it seems natural to me to uh, link the topic of reading in one language, a prestige language, and writing in another language, the, uh, the local established language, uh, with the topic of your next chapter, that of Trieste, where the, um, a similar situation is prevailing with German cultural influences coming in and a distinctively local non-German end product being created from them. Yes, uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, this, this pattern of reading in X, writing in Y, um, 
is something that uh, I think could probably be uh, explored in in many uh, in many other contexts. Um, but certainly in Trieste, uh, this becomes the main um, filter through which I look at uh, someone who's not normally uh, considered a translator, but I call him one uh, because I use this model, and that's the the uh, Italian novelist uh, Italo Zvevo. Zvevo uh, is especially known for um, one particular novel called La Coscienza di Zeno, or um, called, it's been variously translated as The Confessions of Zeno or The Conscience uh, of Zeno. And uh, this novel and, uh, and, and uh, Zvevo himself um, are encapsulate some of the uh, tensions uh, that prevailed uh, in the very uh, brutal, dissonant, difficult period as they approach the event of what becomes known as uh, the redemption of Trieste in 1918. Uh, that is the uh, uh, the so-called return, although I don't think Trieste actually ever was a part of the 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 uh, adherence of, of Trieste to, uh, to Italy. Trieste um, is an incredibly <laughs> atypical city. Uh, it's a city which was uh, culturally Italian uh, always, uh, but uh, for 400 years, uh, Trieste was a German um, language uh, ad administrative city. It was under the uh, Habsburg Empire uh, from the 1400s. Uh, to uh, 1918, so for a very, very long time. And uh, Svevo, whose real name was uh, Ettore Schmitz, um, which is as hybrid as the name as uh, Italo Svevo. Italo Svevo is Ital Italo the Swabian. Ettore Schmitz, Hector, Hector Schmitz, um, was born a Jew in uh, Trieste and uh, at the time, to succeed in any administrative or commercial work, you, you needed to know German. So his father sent him uh, to study uh, in German. Uh, yet, when he returned to uh, Trieste, um, Svevo wanted to be a writer in Italian because there was no other way to be a writer in, um, in Trieste at that time. Uh, to be a, a, a Triestine writer was to write in Italian, yet Italian was a foreign language, doubly foreign because the real language of citizenship in Trieste is the dialect called Triestino. Then you have another complicating factor, which is the fact that right next to Trieste, Trieste sits on practically on the uh, on the border with Slovenia. So you have Slovenian and creation, Croatian, um, which are also important languages uh, in the city. So. Writing in Italian, reading in German, it becomes uh, a lot of uh, recent research has shown to what extent Svevo um, was trained in German and had a lot of German uh, philosophical uh, predilections. He read Schopenhauer. He was very, very uh, attached to Schopenhauer. He was very attached to Freud. So Trieste was the gateway of German ideas into Italy. And uh, as a novelist, Italo Svevo invented a new genre, it, it, similar in, in certain ways to Ben Kim, we could say. He didn't invent the novel, but
but he invented a certain kind of psychological novel which had not existed uh, in the Italian context. And he did this by translating from German, by translating himself, his, uh, his language, literally, because he was someone who was known to actually speak, um, you know, use German expressions. Uh, but um, a certain kind of novelistic consciousness um, into, into Italian. Now, the novel, The Conscience of Zeno, is really a remarkable novel. It's funny, it's um, uh, entertaining, it's witty, it's, it's got a, a, a tremendously um, attractive, I, I mean, I recommend it to anyone, it's, it's one of the great, great European novels. Um, Italo Zevo was, was a good friend of James Joyce. It was, in fact, James Joyce who made him who made him famous. And there are affinities between the two writers in their inventiveness, in their psychological um, um, innovativeness. And uh, uh, to read um, Zvevo's novels as translations from the German is to allow one to understand to what extent he was able to use the elements of one culture to innovate um, in a second one. Particularly interesting, I just as a, a PS here, is the influence of Freud and the influence of psychoanalysis. Um, Freud was introduced into Italian in Trieste. He was translated by uh, Eduardo Weiss, who was a friend of the uh, circles in which uh, Svevo himself circulated. And um, Svevo's novel uh, uses uh, Freud and uses his uh, use of psychoanalysis as as a structuring device. Now, your chapter on Barcelona is subtitled The Cracked Mirror of Self-Translation, and you discuss in particular Camerriera's uh, translational practices in writing in uh, Catalan and revising in Castilian and so on. A theme that also recurs throughout this, uh, throughout your work, is the idea that people who self-translate are sometimes criticized for aspects of authenticity which are perceived to be lacking or which are perceived to be discarded in those auto-translations. Why do you think that is? Yes, I think there's an aspect uh, that's, uh, of self-translation that, that's very interesting. I think it's the idea that um, self-translation is uh, a kind of a black box. Uh, one trans there's no former text that uh, people can check. In fact, I think that's probably one of the whole one of the reasons why why translators are often suspect in the first place is that people don't have access to to to, to the mysterious process of the conversion from one language to the other, and that's even more uh, uh, more marked in the question of self translations because what's happening? How how are these cultures uh, put together? Um, Self-translations do uh, give rise to suspicion. I think the, the most virulent kind of suspicion um, was, has been addressed to the uh, Yiddish writer, I.B. Singer, uh, who uh, won the Nobel Prize and who is, of course, a beloved, beloved, beloved writer for, for so many people. And yet for many people who, um, or, or for some who are, readers of the original Yiddish, and it's particularly the, the Yiddish that he wrote when he lived in Europe. Um, he is accused of, uh, of um, diminishing, diluting, not being faithful uh, to 
uh, to, to that culture, but yet trying to sell himself to a new culture. I think that's part of it as well as the, the idea of the, this popularity, how, how you sell yourself, how you, how you promote your writing uh, to the detriment, perhaps, of the culture to which you owe that. Um, and that comes across as well in another example, which is Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, who won the Nobel Prize in 1913 uh, for his self-translations from Bengali. And that's remained uh, a source of great uh, controversy in regard to how he did that. And it's often been suggested that uh, uh, W.B. Yeats, who was the editor and professor of that uh, of that collection, in a sense, uh, made uh, Tagore into more of a mystical uh, writer than he was, and uh, and and didn't uh, didn't uh, convey uh, the modernism of Bengali culture, which uh, I mean, Tagore was an inventive, modern, uh, absolutely uh, not traditional or mystic writer at all. So he was, in a sense, misrepresenting himself, and that earned him the Nobel Prize. That's a pretty good way of, uh, you know, it's it's good he got the Nobel Prize. We we like that. But one can understand that uh, that there would be objections to this to, to this idea of translation as misrepresentation um, of oneself. Now, in the Barcelona context, I think it's it's uh, it's slightly different. But the writer that I'm referring to, Karma Riera, is very aware. Um, of how translation, and how could it not be, uh, is uh, a formative um, uh, key to understanding the culture of the city of Barcelona and, uh, and the evolving uh, Cat Catalan-Castilian question. And she, being a postmodern writer, she poses the question in, 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 in almost Borgesian ways, I mean, in ways that remind us of Borges, What's first? How, who, who gets an idea? How does it get translated? So she, she tells a very interesting story of, uh, it's a tale, it's a parable uh, of two good friends. One writes uh, some poetry in Catalan. His friend translates him into Spanish. Um, that doesn't do well. On the other hand, the translation, there's another translation, which is a next uh, step, which is back at, at, at a further collection, which is back into Spanish, uh, that does do well. I mean, the, 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 what is popular? What what um, you know? What is new uh, for a um, uh, for a culture, and, and and what is taken up as something original? And in the end, her um, her point is that the profoundly original thinker, uh, a poet, is not recognized as such. The derivative one. The one who is kind of copied from his friend is recognized as brilliant uh, because what he presents to that other language seems new and important to it at the same time. But what happens in the process is that original and copy get entirely mixed up and nobody knows any longer which is the original, who is first, who comes later. And I think that's, um, excuse me, interestingly, um, she bases this parable on two real uh, authors um, who actually did have this situation, live this situation um, in the 1960s or 70s. So it, it's quite fascinating to think that these, these kinds of relationships actually <laughs> do happen across the borders. But the fact that 
translation, self-translation, questions of betrayal, um, questions of secrecy, um, these, that these become master keys to talking about uh, Barcelona culture make uh, a great deal of sense. Um, we're talking about two languages that are in many ways equal in power, Catala Catalan having had um, a, a strong basis in a, a manufacturing culture which, is, uh, which remains strong, Spanish being the language of the uh, of the country as a whole, but of uh, Spanish immigrants who immigrated into um, uh, Barcelona in the 1960s. Some say they were driven to do so by Franco, who was looking to dilute Catalan culture. So there's already a very contestatory relationship between these languages. And yet they look at each other every day. They confront each other every day across the spaces of Barcelona. Uh, they're mirrors of each other. Um, they're languages that are very similar uh, physically, visually. Uh, sometimes it's just one letter that's different between the two. Um, the, this is a relationship that is truly specular, which is the mirror, which is the uh, who's looking at whom. And uh, the possibilities uh, of betrayal, of course, are, are huge. Um, in the sense that um, um, we know that there was this political imbalance, that one language was for a long time uh, prohibited, that there's a, a long uh, history of, of, of resentments and, uh, and secrets, and secrets that, uh, uh, that went uh, in, into the culture. You know, one would think that um, the fact that two languages are close to each other would make translatability easier. Uh, but in fact, sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes languages that are too close um, can't be uh, translated. And I have a sort of one particularly sinister uh, illustration of that. Um, there's a very well-known speech that uh, Kafka gave to a theater audience. Um, Kafka was someone who, was, who spoke German but was very, very interested, became fascinated uh, by the Yiddish language. And he was uh, very involved with the Yiddish theater group um, in, in Prague. And uh, for one of their performances, he addressed the audience uh, ahead of time. And he said, don't be worried uh, about uh, the Yiddish language. In fact, um, you, you really understand more than you think you do. Just close your eyes and, and try and understand it. On the other hand, he said, be careful because there is a big difference between the two languages. And he used two words. Um, he said, toit is not tot, death is not death. And he said, blut is not blut, which is uh, blood is not blood. And uh, went on to talk about how the uh, German language would in fact eat uh, or take over uh, the Yiddish language. Or there is, a, so, so there's a, there's a sort of a very sinister uh, premonitions of, uh, of what might come. But he said, um, you may understand the language, you may think you understand the language, but be careful that when you translate, you're not, that, that, that you can't really translate because um, one language uh, is stronger than the other one. So too much similarity uh, between languages uh, can, can be uh, a, a, an obstacle to translation. You turn finally to your home city, Montreal, 
Earlier in the book, you touch on the sense of translating a city using its reference points to describe another city. And you give an example, I think, in which Mexico City is used to describe Chicago. Do you feel that your experience of your own city conditions the way you analyze plurilingual city spaces? For sure, for sure. Because uh, the questions that I came to, uh, the questions that motivate uh, my work come from from my own growing up in a city where um, I belonged to a the stronger language group, not the more um, numerous, but the stronger language group, uh, but at the same time was immensely attracted uh, to uh, understanding, to crossing the city, to uh, adventuring in, into uh, the terrain of the uh, more numerous language group, and yet understood that um, if you like structurally, I was not welcome. So there was this this combination of of, of fear and and uh, uh, attraction um, and of a kind of uh, the, the the difficult affects uh, that are involved in living uh, in in such a situation of of language division. Um, over the years, I've seen uh, the situation change. Uh, a great deal. I've seen some fascinating examples of translation which have had uh, extraordinary social uh, and politi political effects. Um, and so um, this has been um, um, the source of my interest in, in, in looking at passages across the city to see that passages across the city do have effects um, that that language relationships are always in a situation of change. And I think that's why translation is such a, an interesting and important way of trying to grasp those uh, because, um, because there's always a directionality. So it's not simply, I, I'd like to make a, dis a distinction between um, what I call the, multi, the multilingual city and the translational city. So all cities are multilingual, as I said, so all cities can be seen as agglomerations of languages, but if you look at it as a city as a translational city, you'll see that the relations among these languages are always moving. Um, so there's a directionality, translating from where to where, um, from Hindi into English, but from English into Hindi, probably not a great deal um, in, let's say, Toronto. Um, from English into French, from French into English. So there's uh, directionality, which is always um, promoting um, these uh, these changes and um, and changing the relationships of uh, of languages one to the other. I mean, Montreal is perpetually um, in a state of um, contested uh, languages. Which languages? You know, how is English doing with regard to French? Um, these things are being monitored all the time. But in all cities. Um, everywhere, uh, these relationships are changing all the time. The relative power of the dominant language, the relative power of the minority languages, Spanish in the United States, for instance, this is an ongoing situation. Who's translating from what to what? Um, how is citizenship uh, being redefined uh, through these relationships? So Montreal is my starting point, but <laughs> uh, and, and a very uh, fertile one. I think, but uh, you know, the questions that I'm asking can be applied to, to cities across the world. 
Let me conclude then by asking, in your last chapter, you present a, uh, a historical synopsis of Montreal in which it's clear that uh, a great deal more development, more translation, more furthering is taking place than has historically been the case, even when there were certain uh, very productive modernist cultural movements going on. What uh, What is the focus for your research now? What uh, What particularly draws you to uh, to explore further? Uh, two things. Um, I think that um, uh, I'd like to continue my exploration of Montreal and uh, and uh, update uh, a lot of the questions that I've been looking at in relation to languages of immigration. So where is Arabic today on the city map? I gesture uh, to these questions in my last chapter without developing them um, as well as uh, I could have. Um, I was I have looked at, uh, you know, um, languages of the Mediterranean, Italian, Portuguese, how they did um, in the city, how they're they brought a certain kind of cultural élan, especially Italian um, in the 1960s has been very important to Quebec culture. Um, but what's doing now, what's happening now with relation to South Asian languages, with relation to Arabic, uh, North American cities are uh, cities of migration. Um, so are European cities now. Um, I think it's very important that we understand the relationship uh, among languages in terms of uh, the changing relationships of power um, and the regard that is given to these languages as, um, as, as they are languages in translation. So what are we going to gain from the cultures um, that, are, that are investing um, in the most positive ways um, our cities in, um, uh, in Europe and North America? Uh, but I have another um, area that I would like to... Um, uh, to investigate, and that's Central European cities, especially Central European cities um, in the period before the Holocaust. So um, uh, one of the cities that I've become interested in now is um, a city called Chernovitz, which is now in uh, the Ukraine, uh, but um, was the easternmost city of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, interesting in its, in its relationship to Trieste, which was one of the most westernmost cities of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Chernovitz was uh, very much a German language city in an, uh, in an area very far away uh, from Vienna, uh, highly literary conscious, uh, similar in many ways to Trieste for the very important literary culture that it spawned, uh, Paul Celan, Rose Auslander, uh, Aaron Affelfeld, and uh, a large number of important writers. So to investigate this city and the translational relationships that happened in the 1920s and the 1930s might um, give us some understanding of how these cities were uh, multicultural, uh, vibrantly uh, differentiated uh, cities um, whose history was in some ways, what can we say, um, um, ambushed by the uh, by the events of the 1930s and 40s. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, both looking back and looking forward. And for the time being, I must just say, Sir Simon, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. 
I've been talking to Sherry Simon about Cities in Translation. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language, saying thanks for listening.